Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, um, if there's any compelling reason why we might want to have our own building is my closet over here. I'm supposed to wear one of these while I preach, but uh, yeah, so sorry about the distraction up here, but we're happy to be, uh, have a place, one, and to be able to be sharing it with the Junior Theater. They're coming up on their 70th anniversary, and so I believe this is, these are the props and the costumes that uh, they have been using over the years, and so I think that's why this is up here, I, I believe. Um, so uh, we'll pray that God will help us, that we won't be too distracted by everything else that's uh, going, on, uh, going on up here. Have you turned your Bibles uh, to Psalm chapter 1? And let me begin our time together with, the word, uh, with a word of prayer and ask God's help. Father, we thank you for the time to be uh, slowing down a time to just um, enjoy, enjoy you and enjoy your word that um, reveals who you are. I'm reminded, Father, of Jesus' words uh, in that night when he was praying for his own disciples and not just those disciples that was with him that first, that, uh, that first century, but Father, uh, us, he was praying for us and he said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Father, we, our prayer is that that's the case. We, we want eternal life, and we want thus to know you. And so we pray that today as we come to your word that we would get to know you a little bit better. And we don't want to know about you, Father. We want to know you. And so we would pray that your spirit, who is the source of all life, that your spirit would um, enlarge our hearts and change our desires that we might delight in you in a more wonderful way this day, this, um, this hour, that it might be just a little bit more delight than we had before we came into this place, and that we would go with that delight into this week, um, enjoying you more and more, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name who made this possible. Amen. Well, before we uh, get into the Psalm 1 proper, we need to take some time to consider two things. First, uh, why spend time in the Psalms? Why um, should we spend time in the Psalms both as a church and then why should you be spending time in the Psalms as an individual? And then secondly, how, how do we understand this unique book, uh, the only song book in the library of the 66 books that he gave to us in our Bibles, how do we understand this unique um, book? So let's consider that first question. Why spend time in the Psalms? And I want to answer that question by focusing on one word that is found in our Psalm, uh, Psalm uh, verse, uh, verse 2, Psalm 1, verse 2. That word delights. Psalm 1 is the first of the two poetic pillars that introduce us into what we, you know, we might, might consider like a temple, the temple of the psalm. So Psalm 1 is one pillar, Psalm 2 is the other, and in these two psalms we have some themes that are going to be introduced to us that are going to kind of press out into the rest of the psalms. One of the themes of Psalm 1 is, you see there in verse 2, is the law of the Lord. The law, or the word in the Hebrew is Torah, and that was an elastic word that included uh, not only the first five books, which is the Torah, but it included history, the prophecy, the poetry, and wisdom. This theme 
of the importance of God's revelation that will be repeated throughout the Psalms. Central to the proper loves, or our word here in verse 2, delights, is the law of the Lord. Our, our desires, our wants in this world are fueled by our delights. And what brings us delights shapes our desires. And this is important, connecting us back to Romans chapter 1, where we found ourselves the last two weeks. See, what we found in Romans 1, 18 through 23, two weeks ago, is that in our natural state, we delight in anything and in anyone else but God. We do not delight in God, even though his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, that is his greatness and his goodness, are clearly seen by us every single day in the world that he created. But rather, rather than delighting in him, we suppress that truth in exchange, the glory of the immortal God for images." In other words, we delight in the creation rather than in the creator. And that delight shapes our desires. So God, in his right judgment of our rejection of him as the ultimate delight for lesser delights, he gives us over to our desires. And so that's what we saw last week in Romans chapter 1 24 through 32. It reads, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts, or we could use the word desires. God gave them up to their desires of their hearts to impurity. So why we need to be in the Psalms, both corporately and individually, is that the purpose of the Psalms is to shape our desires by engaging not only the mind, and we will see in a minute here the Psalms are instructive, but also the body. Think of Psalm 134, verse 2. Lift up your hands in the holy place and bless the Lord. Or Psalm 5, 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Or Psalm 3, verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. The Psalms engage the mind and it engages the body. But the Psalms also engage the emotions. We read these words at the beginning of Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry out to you. When I cry out to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary, do not drag me off with the wicked, when the work, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Or Psalm 16, verse 9, which says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Or the words of Psalm 109, of anger against the wicked, where we read, Be sil not silent, O God, of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. Of which Peter used to justify another disciple to replace the betrayer, Judas Iscariot. Emotions, sadness, Gladness, anger, fear. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, I fear no evil. 
For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the Psalms holistically, mind, body, and emotions, shapes our desires for him who truly satisfies. This is why the Psalms ought to be an everyday part of our lives. But there are other reasons. Let me highlight a few other reasons as I introduce this amazing book. In other words, getting at that second question, how do we generally understand this book? The majority of the Psalms were written by David. Uh, the introductory, if you, if you have your Bibles open there, there's some introductory subscripts uh, in your Bibles. Those are inspired, and they do help us to know some of the authors. Uh, there are at least 73 Psalms that are attributed to David. Other uh, authors are the sons of Korah, uh, Asaph, Solomon, Heman, Ethan, and Moses. But what is... What is unique and of interest to the Psalms is that it is the only book of the Bible that has an editor. An editor, someone who had to compile all the Psalms and then place them in this songbook. See, David wrote his Psalms about a thousand, in, in 1000 BC, and we know from the content of the individual Psalms that number of them were composed as much as 500 years later as they describe responses to Israel's exile and restoration back to the land. So who was that final editor? Who, who constructed the final form of the Psalter? Well, we cannot know for sure uh, who constructed the final form of the Psalter, but generally, it is agreed upon by scholars that this person was Ezra, the scribe, or an, at least an Ezra-like character. See, from our recent study in the book named after him, who wasn't introduced until chapter 7. This is what we learned about him when he's introduced in chapter 7. Uh, he was a scribe, this is Ezra 7, 6. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And then in verse 11, the same chapter, it says, he was a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. And his method was straightforward and instructive. He sets his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel, Ezra 7.10. If it wasn't Ezra, it was an Ezra-like character, person, who loved all of Scripture. Knowing that the final compilation occurred uh, occurring after the exile, as Israel is being restored to the land, and in particular, they're being restored to Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of all of the worship, the editor had to take all of these psalms, probably more than 150, but he had to take all of these songs and he had to compile them and place them together, and he had to decide which ones remain, which ones were not going to be in there, and he had to determine the order for these reasons. First, to instruct the exiles on who God is and how he, is, how he acts on their behalf. Secondly, to restore proper worship that is centered around the covenant-making God. And third, to give words to their prayers for the range of experiences that they had gone through and will continue to, continue to go through. And so for these reasons, <laughs> we ought to be in the Psalms to be instructed in who God is and how he acts to inform our worship and to give words to our prayers. Another reason the Psalms ought to be a normal everyday part of our lives is the connection and perspective it gives to our lives. As we go through trials and tribulations, either personally or as a local church or even as the worldwide church in this generation, it's easy to get on blinders where we can only see our moments in time. Blind to the reality that there was a church before us and its individual members who have gone 
through what we are going through. So what we discover in the Psalms is a whole host of experiences that those who have gone before us can now instruct us. So think of it. As we study, as we meditate on, as we sing, as we apply the Psalms, we are studying, meditating on, we are singing and applying the same songs as the restored exiles in Ezra. Or as we begin to think about, as we we kind of put our, our, our focus in on this fall, when we study in Nehemiah, that same Psalms that they were singing as they were putting brick upon brick, stone upon stone, as they were building the walls of Jerusalem, these exiled, restored uh, believers, as they are coming back, they're singing these songs. We get to sing the same songs. But not only... Do we get to do that? Um, But all those after them uh, there in Nehemiah's day, including the disciples, the first century church, and the church throughout the centuries, the Psalms gives an experiential connection to all those who have gone before us. What a privilege. This gives perspective so that we can agree with Moses, the the only psalm attributed to him is Psalm 90, we can sing his song. It goes like this. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The Psalms gives us connection and perspective. The Psalms gives us perspective in another way. They uh, reassure us of who is truly the author of the story. One thing you may not know or maybe have not thought about is the placement of the individual Psalms. Ezra didn't randomly place the individual psalms into a kind of a three-ring binder, you know, as he came along, hey, this is a good one, let's put this one in, you know. Um, No, rather, he had purpose. So if the psalms are going to shape our desires, it needs to be shaped in such a way that we delight in the right things and the right person, the almighty God of the universe. And so he was careful in the way that he actually put them in the Psalms. They're not just thrown in. Now first, to understand the Psalms, there are five books within the book of Psalms, believed to correspond with the five books of the Torah, and an emphasis on the instructive power of this book. And so you got book one, which is Psalms 1 through 41, book two, which is Psalms 42 through 72, book three, which is Psalms 73 through 89, book four, Psalms 90 through 106, and then book five, Psalms 107, uh, and ends with 150. And much study has gone in determining the purpose for the particular order of the Psalms. So let me suggest this purpose from the Old Testament scholar O. Robinson, uh, sorry, O. Palmer Robinson, who proposes based upon the content in the authorship, uh, uh, this kind of order. Book one, Psalms one through 41, is about confrontation. Confronting the nations that there is only one king, the Messiah. Book two, Psalms 42 through 72, communication. Book Two primarily focuses more on Israel's victories over the nations, but also the intent to communicate God's heart for the nations. And his heart is to have a Davidic-like king who would reign over the nations. Book three, devastation. In the third book, there's a realistic picture of the conflict with the powers of the nations that ultimately ends with devastation of God's people and the casting of Messiah's crown to the ground. The nations as a whole do not want his reign, according to book three. And the reality of the fallen world is that it is one of conflict, a great difficulty, and even devastation for God's people, which then moves us to book four. The story isn't over. 
The fourth book serves to give God's devastated people a more mature perspective on the coming kingdom. It's a book that confirms the Lord's dominion across the ages. It's what, it's what trials and devastation does to our lives, and that is it matures us. And so maturation, book four. And then the final book is one which assures God's people of the ultimate consummation of God's kingdom. So why saturate ourselves in the Psalms? Well, they give us long-term vision that makes sense of the short term. In the short term, there will be conflict and difficulties and even devastation as God's kingdom confronts and communicates to the kingdoms of the world. This matures us as we wait for the consummation of his story. And so if I was going to be doing jumping jacks right now, I would have us turn to Psalm 103, verses 15 through 19, which gives us some perspective. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant to remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. This psalm gives us, the psalms give us perspective. Now finally, before we get to Psalm 1, the psalms, like all poetry, slow us down. I just want you for a minute to consider why we need this. There's a global recognition of the incredible amount of anxiety and stress in our world that has never existed before, particularly in the West, but particularly within the first world countries. And it has to do with the speed of change. Richard Swinson, a doctor and a futurist, has given substantial time to studying the trends of history. And what he did is he traced history, traced recorded history, that's about 5,000 years of recorded history. And what he saw is that for the most of human history, life was slow and sad and simple, not a lot of movement. But then beginning in the 1700s and then the next 200 years, the Industrial Revolution made significant movement forward for our civilization. So you can begin to think of all the technological um, inventions, the steam engine, telegraph, telephone, modern medicine, dynamite. I think of my own grandfather. My grandfather, um, his parents, owned a team of horses and a wagon. When he died, my grandfather, when he died in the early 18, or 1980s, he saw the successful employment of the space shuttle program. He started his life in a wagon and ended his life watching us go back and forth into space. All in his lifetime. The speed of change seemed fast, but he had no idea what was coming. According to Swinson, in the last 35 years, we have experienced more change than the previous 5,000 years, so that if we would graph this, it would be uh, all of history, it would look like a flat line in comparison to the spike of the recent three decades. And there's no reason to believe this is going to slow down anytime soon. So think about it. 20 years ago, there were zero apps, zero people on Facebook, zero people on Twitter, zero people on YouTube. Today, there are 2.87 million apps with 218 billion downloads just last year. 2.9 billion people on Facebook right now, 330 million on Twitter, with 6,000 tweets going out per 
seconds. 2.6 billion active users on YouTube. Now let me ask you this. How do you feel when you misplace your cell phone? Is there a little bit of panic? What do you do when you lose it? There's a syndrome called a phone vibrating syndrome where you think your phone is vibrating, but it is not. Studies are showing that when the phone vibrates in our pockets, it's actually creating new neuron connections and that we are so connected that at times there's a false vibration, there's a false signal that goes through our neurons that causes us to think that our phone is actually vibrating when it's not. All of this is due to the speed of change. And this is incessant, incessant noise. With all of this noise, how do we hear the voice of God? Well, poetry slows us down. Hebrew poetry primarily uses parallelisms to communicate ideas, and so we have to pay attention to the parallel stanzas to receive the message of the psalmist. And Hebrew poetry uses analogies or metaphors like we see in our psalm today. The psalms need to be a part of our daily life simply to slow down to hear the voice of God. So what does he say to us in Psalm 1? Well, let me suggest this. This is what he says. My aim for your life is your happiness. My aim for your life is your happiness. God created humanity to glorify him by enjoying him. We take ourselves back to Genesis 1 and 2, and there's this place of joy, and it's a joy that comes as a result of this intimate relationship that humanity, the man and the woman, they have with God. This joy was lost when the man and the woman shifted their delights off of their relationship with God onto lesser delights. But we immediately discover the essence of God, that not only is he great, but he is gracious and he is good. And so he moves, in his wisdom, he moves humanity down a path of restoring their delights back to him. So look at the first stanza of Psalm 1 that introduces all of the Psalms. The first stanza goes this way, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man or woman. Blessedness is an appropriate introduction to the entire Psalms, for this is its intended aim. The intended aim of the Psalms is our blessedness or happiness. Considered all, considering all the varied circumstances described in the Psalms, the emotions felt, uh, the types of Psalms, we've got praise and lament Psalms, this is remarkable. To sit in the Psalms is an invitation towards blessedness by his people glorifying God through everything life has to throw at us. Or happiness. And I think happy is a good rendition of the word, provided we keep in mind that it is not merely a feeling. It can be a feeling, but even in the middle of negative feelings or adverse conditions, blessedness is not affected. God wants you to be happy in Him. And so He gives us the Psalms. 
the holistic taking our mind and our bodies and our emotions, and he's using all of this, and he says, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how you can be blessed, how you can be happy in whatever circumstances you go through. And again, if you think about the Psalms, if you know anything about the Psalms, you know the trials and the pain and the suffering that they were going through, and yet somehow God is saying, you can be blessed in that. You can be happy. Blessedness. Now, blessedness is, is nurtured by two activities. Uh, first, disassociation from the wicked and association with God. So two activities, disassociation from the wicked and association with God. Disassociation is brought out by means of three negative sen- uh, sentences there in verse one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. To walk, to stand, to sit, this, these are synonymous parallelisms. It's to serve, it serves to portray the totality of evil. We are blessed when we do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, it's really important to understand this word wicked because he uses it four times in six verses here to identify these individuals. The wicked uh, was, the, was an individual who was found guilty in a court of law or who would be brought to trial. Now, who's he thinking of? And, and, and here's why it's so important. When I, th- when I hear the word wicked, the first person I think of is in 20th century, Hitler. I think of a despot. I think of someone who just is, you know, we say they're really, they're really wicked, really evil. But that's not this word. That's not whom we are to be thinking about when we think about the wicked. Rather, we are to be thinking about an individual who, if they are brought before the trial of before God, God being the judge, and they come with all of their, um, all of their goodness, they come with all of their merits, despite the fact that, as we saw in Romans, that there is an evidence that this God is a God who is holy other than and demands something much greater than what we can give, but comes and says, here, here's what I can give you in my own strength, in my own merits, they would be guilty. That is the wicked. So I don't think of myself as wicked. I certainly don't think, well, I don't think my neighbor is wicked, typically. They may be more wicked than me. <laughs> but I don't think of myself as wicked until I understand that that's this word. Apart from Christ, born into this world, what we have discovered is we are wicked. Because we reject them, him, who is the greatest good, and we look to something else. We look to the creation rather than we look to the creator, and that is a very wicked thing for us to do. So that's whom we're referring to here. So the wicked don't always look that wicked. They actually look really good. Romans 1, we saw that we suppress the truth of his eternal greatness and his divine nature, his goodness. And we don't have to go back to Romans 1. As a matter of fact, all we have to do is, uh, we'll have it here on the screen here, uh, Psalm 2. See, here's the second part of the introduction we see, we'll look at next week. But look at verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel, there's our word together, against Yahweh and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I don't have anything to do with God. I want his, I, I want to have, be completely separated from him. I don't want him to be my master. That's who we're referring to. It's a rejection as God is king and a rebellion that is at the heart of the wicked. And so blessed comes when we do not walk in their counsel. Counsel is a word that speaks of schemes or plans or advice of the wicked. So again, I go back to all of the noise because much of the content of the noise that we are getting, that we are receiving uh, through all of this media that we were, I was just referencing earlier are schemes and plans and advice to reject God and rebel against the God of the universe. And it doesn't feel very wicked at all because they're really good at it and I get it. 
But he goes on, blessedness comes to those who do not stand in the way of sinners. Way is a common metaphor for the manner of life. And thirdly, blessedness are those, blessed are those who do not sit in the seat of scoffers. Scoffers uh, or mockers scoff at the ways of God. So blessedness is nurtured by a disassociation with the wicked, the counsel or manner of life, or sitting with mockers. Blessedness is nurtured rather by an association with God. And that association with God, to meet God, to know him, not to know about him, but to know him is found there in verse 2 in the law of the Lord. So look at the contrast. Blessedness comes to those who delight in the law of the Lord. And really the word delight belongs just as much to verse 1 as it does to verse 2. See, nobody walks in the counsel of the wicked out of duty. Nobody stands in the ways of sinners out of duty. Nobody sits in the seat of the scoffers out of duty. Where we walk and stand and sit is determined by what we ultimately delight in. We are there because we want to be there. Our desires, our wants are fueled by our delights. And what comes naturally to us is to delight in the world. But what comes supernatural is delighting in the law of Yahweh. Do you see that? L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D. That is Yahweh. That is the covenantal name. And the reason that the psalmist uses the covenantal name is because he reminds us of the new covenant. The new covenant was a promise that God said he would actually put a love or put the law of the Lord in our hearts. And what that means is that we will love it. And so if you love the law of the Lord, if you love God's word, you know that's because he placed that in you. He gave you that desire. He gave you that delight. Next stanza. On his law, he meditates day and night. Now think about it. The Old Testament, you know, uh, Old Testament re- readers, they, they generally, the Old Testament was not available to them. So they memorized or pondered the word of God. So we have Psalm 119, verse 11, which says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. And they pondered on the saving ways of the Lord. Psalm 63, verse 6, I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And they pondered on his might. Psalm 77, verse 12, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. See, there was this habit that they they had created There was a daily rhythm. If you think coming here on Sunday morning is enough to change your delights in a world of 24-7 incessant noise, you're wrong. It ain't going to happen. His aim is for your life is your happiness. And that comes as he reshapes your desires for him through regular daily rhythms of being in his word, which results in being filled with the will of God and the doing of that will in everyday life. And this has real life relational work play implications, verses three and four. It's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. And the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. When I r- read this verse, the immediate thought I have is of a tree that's found on this campus. This property has some really interesting um, history. Uh, This property is on the National Register of Historic Places with the U.S. Department of Interior. I have a copy of the 99 pages of its description. And in that description, they identify one tree. 
It's a tree that if you go out here and go kind of on the, that's the south side, the south side, the southwest side, it's still inside the, inside the, the drive. It's by what's, what used to be a preschool, and you can kind of look at that building and it looks like a little preschool building. There's also a flagpole over there. You go over there and you will see a tree there. It is an oak tree that they believe by the circumference of it uh, was planted probably in 1874. And it is glorious huge with, you can imagine, massive branches going out, but it's just kind of perfectly shaped, beautiful, beautiful tree, um, grandeur. What's really interesting, it's, it's planted on a prehistoric Indian uh, burial mount. It's on this campus. Uh, it's, got, it's got stature. And that has to be in our mind's eye when we read verses 3 and 4. But notice a few of the details of verses 3 and 4. The psalmist is thinking about a tree which is planted. So this is a purposeful planting. And he's not thinking of trees that are growing in the wild or even a tree that's planted in the field. No, he's thinking of a tree that has been purposefully planted by streams of water in such a way that it will yield its fruit in its season. So it's a picture of God's man or woman who has been given a stream of living water, the word of God, of which as our roots grow deep into the water of life, we increasingly delight in the ways of God, which results in a life that is fruitful. So the river of God can never be dried up, for it is the spirit of God which is the eternal source for the river. So that our speech and our activities are life-giving to all those who come in contact with us. So we hear Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Or Proverbs 15, verse 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Its leaf does not Wither. So in dry times, in difficulties, when the prevailing winds have the intent to kind of suck all that life-sustaining water, that moisture, the man or woman of God has this fresh, encouraging perspective that brings cooling shade to all those who gather around them. Bottom line, when God's word changes our desires and we delight in God and his ways, there is prosperity. And it's not that finite financial prosperity, that fleeting finite financial prosperity, but it's the enduring prosperity of God's blessings on one's life. So that in all that he does, the psalmist writes, he prospers. So that in whatever context, at work or at home or on the road, we find those who delight in God's word, there is a fruitful impact. Now, this is in comparison to the wicked. The wicked are not so. They are profoundly affected by their circumstances, their difficult circumstances, and they're not fruitful. And the psalmist pictures them to be like chaff, like chaff that the wind drives away. So chaff is that cast-off material from the harvest. It is of no use. It has no weight, and thus is moved by the slightest breeze. Those who do not delight in God's word don't meditate on it. They have no weight. So the slightest change in the breeze of the cultural conscience, and they blow with the next trend. Oak tree versus chaff. His aim for your life is your happiness. But not just in this life. His aim is your eternal happiness. Look at verses 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways, way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Now, this end of the wicked may not be clear in the midst of life that has rejected the instruction of the Lord. The Psalms are filled with complaints <laughs> about the present prosperity of the wicked. For example, another one that we can see here, Psalm 73. The psalmist writes, I was 
envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff, there's our word, and speak with malice. Lawfully, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. And therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they, they say, well, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. To the point where the author of Psalm 73 wonders, like I've wondered, and perhaps maybe you have wondered, is this all in vain, you know, following Jesus? Is it all in vain that we walk in God's ways? The psalmist, in Psalm 73, he came to his own conclusion. I'll let you read it on your own sometime. But what is not apparent today will be on the day of judgment. See, our psalm says, verse 1, the wicked, or Psalm 1, verse uh, uh, 5, the, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. See, on the day of judgment, there is going to be a separation of the righteous, that is, those who are right before God and the wicked, those who have rejected God. And so that in this life, the wicked find no purpose or value to gather and worship even today. So it makes sense that if you have rejected God, you wouldn't be here on Sunday morning. You wouldn't gather in the congregation. Sunday is not the Lord's day. It is their day to do with it whatever they want. But to gather on Sunday doesn't ultimately mean we delight in Him either. It doesn't mean that just because we're here, verse 6, for the Lord knows the ways of the righteous. And so as used in verse 1, the way is a reference to the manner of life. God knows the heart of the righteous, those who are, are, who are his, and he, he knows us in a way that speaks of intimacy, of being cherished. He, he cherishes the righteous, and he sees what others are seeing as the righteous are merciful and kind, and so uh, our last psalm that we can read, Psalm 37, 18 through 24, the Lord knows. The Lord knows the day, days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those, who cur or those cursed by him shall be cut off. See, the way, of the, the way of the righteous is clearly different than the way of the wicked, but the way of the wicked will perish. And this is true throughout history and will climatically end in the day of the Lord. And so his aim for your life is your happiness. That's what he wants for you. You nurture that delight in the law of the Lord. You nurture it by being in, connected to the source every day. Now allow, allow me to conclude at the beginning of Psalm 1. See, what we don't get in our English version, you would if you were a Hebrew reader or listener. The particular Hebrew form, um, the Hebrew verb form in verse 1, gives this emphasis. The only man or woman who will be happy are those who never associate with the wicked, so that is, those who never walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, for the Hebrew listener, that's what they heard. First of all, they heard, blessed is the man, oh good, 
But then the psalm says, it's the person who has never done this. It's the person who is perfect. And what he's doing here, because this is the first pillar, he's setting them up to understand, okay, if that's the case, then there is no hope for me if it's going to be counted upon me. And then he gives them to Psalm 2, because what he's doing is he's setting them up to see that, well, that's true, there's another coming. Psalm 2, the anointed, his anointed, in whom the Father invites for us and our eternal happiness to verse 12 of chapter 2. The invitation is this, so kiss the Son. <laughs> so kiss the Son. S-O-N, the anointed one, God's anointed. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now listen to this, how this ends. Introduction, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Isn't that great? Is that good or what? Blessed is the man, oh by the way, you are not it. <laughs> but I've got one for you, the son. Be, believe in him, loyal, kiss him, love him, give all your loyalty to him. Because blessed are all who take refuge in him. And then the rest of the psalm is gonna talk about this. It's gonna talk about this blessedness and it's gonna talk about this anointed one. It's gonna talk about how, who God is and how he works and how we can be blessed as we take refuge in him. So Jesus Christ came to be your refuge. He absorbed the wrath of God and died for your sins. He rose again to change your delights. So receive Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior. Delight in him. Believer, as you take this bread, which is a reminder of his broken body on your behalf and the cup of the new covenant pointing to his blood shed for you. Delight in him again. For his aim for your life is your happiness. Father, there are, there are certain, there are certain, there, there are certain things we ought to be crying about. goodness and grace. So our prayer, Father, today is that you would work. I pray that every person here kisses your son. We pray that every person here would take refuge in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the Psalms. Thank you that you have our happiness in mind by glorifying yourself that we might find our satisfaction in you alone. And so, Father, we pray that as we go through these Psalms this summer, increase our delight in you. So as we take this bread and this cup, Father, yeah, grow our delight we ask. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.